Today's scripture reading will be from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to invite you to imagine for a second, imagine a church, a church that's bigger than maybe a small group of your friends that share, have an affinity with your life stage, maybe your occupation, maybe your desires, likes, your political views, something bigger than that. I want you to imagine a church that's more of a people than it is just a couple friends, a family. And since we all come from some kind of family one way or another, we know that that can be a bit messy, but it also can be wonderful. So imagine a church that's much more like a people, much more a family, where you have both the young and the young at heart. You have people who come weary from the weights of the world, and those who are excited about the challenges in the world and to face them head on. The, a, a church that's made up of men and women, a church that's made up of people who are single um, and those who are married, those who are married with kids and those who are married without kids. Imagine a church that has um, people who are financially vulnerable and financially robust, a church with highly educated folks and those who are highly educated in street smarts, right? A church made up of folks from across different cultural backgrounds, ethnicities, racial groups, and not just to be quote-unquote present and then all now embracing one particular kind of culture, but actually a way in which we can show up with our full selves and seeing those unique cultural elements and ethnic elements as a gift we bring one to another rather than spaces we need to quiet towards the irreducible minimums. Imagine a church where we can show up <laughs> and we actually learn how to change wounding behaviors and repent of them. A community that actually names wounds and then also offers forgiveness. 
a community made up of a whole host of different kinds of people from different kinds of backgrounds where our identities individually aren't lost but find themselves celebrated, supported, and even secondarialized to the reality of being in Jesus. All of it finding its extraordinary foundation in Christ, because of Christ, through Christ. Each of us for each of us. All of us in one Jesus. All of that made available. And then the kind of community that that would be is that we would actually have a palpable experience of the Spirit where he is working, shaping, actually building up in a richer, more sturdy way our relationships one with another. That is the vision, dare I say, the reality of the church that the Apostle Paul lays before us in our passage. As much as we want that, that's what the Apostle Paul says is. And that's what God has done. This is not a passage about what the church could be. This is what... Christ has accomplished in his victory. This is a statement of reality. And if I don't know you, my name's Gabe. Um, good morning. And I, I have preached, I've studied, I've taught this passage. This, this passage is near and dear to my heart. Um, and frankly, it's near and dear to the Apostle Paul's heart because in some way, shape, or form, this particular message that he lays out here that he continues to seize out throughout the letter shows up in almost every one of his letters, dare I say all of his letters. And every time I hear this passage read or I study it afresh, I have a mixture of both longing and frustration. <laughs> the longing I have is because everywhere else I go looking for that kind of community, it seems to be lacking, or even sometimes the experience we can have in the church or a church can feel lacking. The ethnic and racial divisions we experience in our world, and especially within this country, are striking. And then the moment these conversations begin to spark, they are fanned into flame by political polarization, guided down paths of toxic you know, uh, centralization, and it becomes a space where nobody can have thoughtful conversation or a genuine space of genuine unity amidst diversity. And so I become very frustrated. And then generally, just in our broader relationships, the moment relationships more and more become difficult aren't as easy as we see in the shows that we binge the moment that, that the moment they become difficult is the moment we walk away. The moment we don't agree exactly on the same things anymore is the moment we walk away. We're so quick to walk thinking that it's so much easier if we just leave now. And yet we still want this kind of community that the Apostle Paul says is actually a reality in Jesus. And I think sometimes we do get a glimpse of it. So, so in the midst of this longing, some, we, we do get a glimpse, and I, I get a glimpse of it here in the downtown campus. So I'll give you a couple examples. When, I, when we think about the membership moment, how many of you are here for that membership moment? We had folks who committed to this church, and just hearing their stories that when they walked into this place, they didn't feel othered, they felt welcomed, they felt like they belonged, that people treated them like family long before they even knew their name. And that was beautiful, and you had people of different races, ethnicities, genders, life stories, all of that was represented up. It was beautiful. And I go, okay, there, there's a glimpse of what I see Jesus has already done in the church. 
When I think about, we have over 80 people in the downtown campus who've gone through the Dividing Lines tour and thinking through, okay, what does it look like within Kansas City that has been racially divided intentionally in its structures and systems? Like, what does it look like for a follower of Jesus to show up differently, even though it may come with cost or challenge or pain? To hear that people are having those conversations and wrestling through what that might mean for us as a church, I get a glimpse of it. When I think about the gathering that Karis, Joe, Lori, and Darion have put together a pathway that helps followers of Jesus to have a richer theology and sociology and history of race, ethnicity, reconciliation, and justice, that we might be more thoughtful in those conversations. I think that's a glimpse. And then just yesterday, a group of men out of H3 gathered together at Crossroads Academy to serve in the basement, moving boxes around so teachers could do what teachers need to do in educating our children. And in the midst of that, having conversations around empathy and what does it look like to show up differently and actually embrace obscurity for the sake of our city, I start to get a glimpse of that. Those are spaces. But then, even though I get these glimpses, I also get a bit of frustration, right? (laughs) Because the moment I have conversations over coffee, I hear of the pain so many of you have had with the church. And I know here at the downtown campus, we have a long way to go. So much growing to do. And because of the brokenness or the lack of realization of this reality in your experience of the church, and for one reason or another, this has been a catalyst for many in deconstructing their faith. When it comes to the church and racial division, that has been a major catalyst for so many to say, Okay, I see this vision that the Apostle Paul's laying out that Jesus has accomplished, but when I look at the church today, these two don't really align. So how do I make sense of this? And the question bubbles up. How do, how do I make sense how race and socioeconomic status continues to be a barrier, not even just in the United States, but in the history of the church? We actually see it across the New Testament as well. How is that a pervasive issue? Why has the church in the United States been complicit in so much racial injustice? How do we move on from here? How do we go about reconstructing faith, which is the name of our series, the journey walking through this brilliant letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus? Well, the beauty is, no matter who you are, when you start to hear of divisions and segregation, there's an element within all of us where we go, that is not the way it ought to be, right? There's, there's something wrong with that. There's something that chafes against our spirit. And you have to ask, where does that come from? Even the fact that you go, that's not right. Who is to say, where does that come from? And especially for us here in the church, it comes from the Apostle Paul lining up with the broader biblical narrative guided by the spirit and writing this brilliant vision of the church right here. Long before our culture thought diversity was a cool idea, long before our country even saw that every human being was actually made in the image of God and carried with it human dignity, we see here that God was guiding his people and guiding the Apostle Paul to speak, to proclaim by the power of the Spirit, a countercultural community that goes and chafes against, yes, the broader Roman and Greco realities of its day and still is a challenge today. Our culture was not the originator of this idea. God was. And he has been passionate about it from the beginning. Because he is wanting to make a church that is a caring family. 
a place where anyone can be family. Anyone. Let's see how. Let's take a look. If you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Last week, we saw as we've been walking through this book, verses 1 through 10, and the Apostle Paul, he lays out this glorious framework, understanding that God actually pursued us. We were, in our, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God broke in, and he has actually made us alive together with Christ, not so that anyone could boast. So nobody who's a part of God's family gets to say, well, I'm in here because I'm a little better. I got here first, or I got here quicker. No, there's no room for boasting in the family. None. And that's crucial And actually, verses 1 through 10, many commentators agree, and and I tend to follow the flow of the argument pretty uh, consistently with those commentators, is that verses 1 through 10, if you imagine these early local churches in Ephesus listening to this letter being read over them, they would have been nodding. Like, oh yeah, God got us. God got, that's right. And then, the reason we know this, or at least begin to assume this, is because when you get to verse 11, Paul goes, therefore... You're all agreeing with me so far. Now let me lay out a framework that's going to challenge you. You've agreed to this point. You're nodding your head. This was astounding that God worked in you when you had no power. But listen, that's not the only place he's working. It's just in you personally. He's doing something. He's pulling together not just individuals for his purpose, but a community, a church that proclaims a different story to the broader world, to the very powers and principalities that often seek to breed division rather than unity. So as we step into this passage, I want to give you a little bit of of the background, of the context as to what's happening here. Not to separate us, but we do need to remember that when Scripture was written, it was written for us, but it wasn't originally written to us. So you might be thinking, well, I didn't have that question, Paul. Well, you weren't in Ephesus in the first century, okay? So remember, this is an ancient text. It comes with historical situatedness. So we got to understand that the Apostle Paul's writing specifically to people, but by the Spirit, it's written for everyone who's seeking to follow Jesus. This is a gift for us today. And so instead of distancing us from the text, I hope this makes us feel right at home, Okay. Because what we find here, interestingly enough, is find, we find th- these two groups of people who are mixing like oil and water. You ever try to put oil, like olive oil, in water? What happens? It just kind of like floats around, right? It doesn't just naturally, you know, mix together. It stays separate. And these two groups of people, they have different restaurants, different ways of dressing, different ways of interacting with the world. They've got their own paths of speech, they've got their own histories, their own cultures, and if you look across the centuries before this letter was even written, you will find a series of of murders and violence and retaliation and again and again and again until the cyclical wheel of just utter hatred towards one another took shape and continued to take on a life of its own. Now these two groups of people were the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And their hatred for one another was not merely ethnic, but it was national. It was not merely racial, but it was religious. And it actually took shape, as do many of our ideas, in brick and mortar. And so you find when you come to the temple, a structure that represents many of these divisions. You see, our ideas 
they inform our structures and our structures then therefore go back and enforce our ideas or our beliefs and all of that works together to shape our identity. And so when we come to the temple in the first century, we need to understand that this is not the first time this, this, the temple has been built. And actually, when it is being rebuilt, it's coming with greater grandeur, greater glory, and certain biases by Herod the Great, and certain the dynamics there in the first century. You'll find this glorious, monstrous temple made before Yahweh. And so you find, actually, this is a reconstruction of uh, the temple, no pun intended, reconstruction, yada, yada. Okay, uh, but here you go, like this little model to kind of give us a window and to help us understand the dynamics of the day, right? Because our structures inform our imaginations too and how we deal with one another. And as you walk through the temple, there were these series of courts and then they were set off by gated walls and they were all moving to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Don't you love that great sketch? Isn't that great? Some of you are like, ooh, send me that in an email. (laughs) Um, All of this is moving to the Holy of Holies. This is the place where God dwells, where heaven and earth touch. This is where God reigns over Israel. This is the place where God actually exercises and is uniquely present. People would come from all across Israel and really actually all across the globe, God-fearing Gentiles, to come to worship, to respect, to honor Yahweh here. But how this would take shape is you would walk in, and the first court you would enter was the court of the Gentiles. This was obviously a space available to all, and so... You would walk in and you could worship Yahweh there directed toward the Holy of Holies. But if you were a God-fearing Gentile, there was a barrier. Because of your ethnicity, you could not pass a wall. There was a wall that clearly said you could not go any further. You could not get any closer to God's presence. Now, the next court in was made available to Jewish men and women. It's often called the women's court because there the women could come in. Jewish women could come in and worship Yahweh. But that is as far as they could go when it came to getting to the Holy of Holies. The next court was the men's court. And this was a place for undefiled Jewish men to come closer to Yahweh. And then, of course, you have the inner sanctum there where you have the holy place and the Holy of Holies where the high priest would enter in and worship, especially on the day of atonement. There were these movements, these dynamics, and how close you could get to God depending on who you were and your gender and your dynamics. And listen, if you cross these barriers, you could be condemned to death. There was actually an inscription on the outermost court, and it read this, whoever is captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. Passing over these boundary markers could lead to your death. Archaeologists uncovered this in the midst of their dig and seeing. And Rome had actually empowered Israel to exercise some of their rules and their regulations. And so the punishment could be utterly severe. Now, I'm not 100% positive, but that sounds like ethnic hostility to me. That there are barriers, there are boundaries such that if you were to cross them, could lead to certain death. You have your space. We have ours. You stay in your place. We'll stay in ours. And the history of bloodshed between the Jewish people and the Gentiles, over and over, if you were to just look through the past 
and then you were to project upon the future and the present, it would seem as if this would go on for ages and ages, forever. But the Apostle Paul, he highlights something here. Because after centuries of bloodshed and hatred, something happened. Look with me, chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. But now, in Christ Jesus, now think about this language, okay? You who once were far off, speaking of the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see this? You see, before Jesus, the law and the temple, they had their central focus and how God was working through the world. And you had to be uniquely Jewish. Those were possessions of the Jewish people. And listen, having unique ethnic identities in and of themselves are not bad. bad. God set apart the Jewish people, not that they might have superiority over others, but that they might be a conduit for all the nations. We see this all the way back in the promise to Abraham. It's not just blessing Israel for Israel's sake. It's blessing Israel for the whole of creation. God had set them apart to make them a unique people for all, not in superiority. But in Jesus... The law and the temple, and all you have to do is go to the book of Hebrews, has been fulfilled in Jesus. The perfect Israelite, the one representing now Israel, did what Israel could never do. He went and he lived a perfect life representing to to the world the Father's wishes. He died a sufficient death as the perfect sacrifice. He himself now became the holy of holies, the presence of God walking in and among the people. Yes, even going to the Gentiles. And then he rose again, offering life. Such that now through him, everyone can have access through him alone. Now I could tell you that the law and the temple and the exclusion and the setting apart of Israel were meant and structured by God's design and intention to bring about the good of the world. I could talk about how the law is in of itself still a gift for us today. And we could talk about Israel's place in the world. But that's not the Apostle Paul's point, and that is a long conversation. We'll have that later. (laughs) The point here that the Apostle Paul is making that is now in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, we have similar, proximate, close, exclusive access to the Holy of Holies. And he's come for us. And not just for you but for us to actually make a way of accessibility for everyone. That was extremely costly to him, but extraordinarily, as we saw last week, full of grace and free to us. And so Jesus came preaching peace, not just that I would feel okay, 
but really the peace among people. Preaching peace to say, come together now with me as the cornerstone, the very bedrock on which you build this new community, this community that I am building. I will be the one who brings and makes peace for everyone who comes to Jesus. And to be very clear, this peace is not available without Jesus. There are temporary imitations. There are cultural fabrications. But this peace is not available, will not be sustainable without Jesus as the cornerstone. The desire to have the fruits of Jesus' kingdom without him as the king are short-term desires that will lead to utter frustration. And so Jesus is at the center. And I know sometimes, you know, we hear this beautiful vision <laughs> that's, that's been displayed, that what God and Christ has done for us to make the church what it is. And we might think, okay, this seems so huge. I don't, even, I don't even understand how to begin. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to do with this. Because the reality is, more and more, when we look throughout the history of the world, and really the history of the church, we see that there are plenty of churches who are rebuilding those walls. And maybe we've done that here too. Throughout a history of the United States church, there have been lynchings, the promotion of segregation, the continued affirmation of separation, political rhetoric that comes with racialization. There has been constant spaces of othering and pushing and boundary making and labeling that has distanced us one from another, where the world's forces have taken charge of the church's messaging. I mean, why? Why has the church been so complicit in racial injustice? Why does this continue to be a barrier? And I think herein lies one of the greatest challenges. Because when you go to Ephesians chapter 1, let's just do a quick review. Jesus is where? He's on his throne. <laughs> over every power, every authority, over every dominion, He's over it all, and everything has been put under his feet. And then when you go to chapter 2, we see that where are we? We're seated with him, and that is not a metaphor. That is a reality of who we are. We have victory in Jesus, and what that means is not that we can just sit back because the victory has been won, but we are invited in to walk in the good works that he's called us to do, to actually carry out that victory of him seated on the throne, to continue to do greater things, Jesus says. By leaning into his victory. And in order to be Jesus' body, this distinct group made up of different people held together by the ligaments and tendons of the spirit with different roles and responsibilities, here's what we must do. We must embrace the pain. You have to embrace the pain. You know, I, I, I grew up in a single-parent household, and I used to have this illusion of family. Um, when I was a kid, I'd like look at people who had two parents, and I'd be like, oh, man, they must have it so easy. <laughs> like, man, look at them. You know, they must never fight. Um, they must never have issues. They must figure out, and, you know, those kids must always have parent time and all these different dynamics. And listen, going from living in a single-parent household to now having a wonderful wife with three kids, it is a lot easier to have two parents, Okay. To be very clear, you can be a tag team and then one, one talks to you and then they go talk to the other. We're like bumping elbows and we're like, yeah, we're on the same team. Got it. You know, like there's an element 
of camaraderie that does make it easier. But my illusion that families that are intact are, you know, husbands and wives raising kids together, that it was easier, I think, was a bit naive. Instead, families that stay together, healthy families, aren't ones that are void of pain or difficulty. They just choose to embrace the pain. (laughs) They choose to fight for one another rather than run from each other. They choose to stay and actually create space to have those difficult conversations in the midst of the pain. And listen, the same is true of the church. The church family is not a place where pain is absent. It's a place where we learn to look at the messiness even though we may come in and frustrated that this isn't being done at the, sp- the pace I want it to, or this isn't being done at all, or I don't feel like these particular needs are being met at this particular time, t- we come in and we say, okay, this is broken people, still in progress. Jesus said he's going to complete the good work he's begun in each person, but that's clearly not done yet because I know it's not done in my life. So I'm going to come in and I'm going to commit to the messiness. And rather than eject, I'm going to trust that there is joy on the far side of that community, even if it means pain in the present. So how do we do this? How do we embrace the family? How do we embrace pain as a family? Well, there's three things, and we're going to look at them here briefly. One, we need to embrace the pain of remembering. Embrace the pain of remembering. There is a pain that comes with looking in the past. There's a pain with looking back at either failures that individuals or communities have made or the, or the difficulties that have come. I mean, can't we just move on? And I think what's so fascinating is that here in a passage about community <laughs> in verses 11 through 22, where does he start? Remember, he doesn't say forget. He's like, oh, no, don't, don't worry about who you were before Christ. No, he said, remember, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget The ostracization, when he's talking about you were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. I mean, that's how intimate these differences went, right? (laughs) People started talking about certain parts of you and labeled you by those certain parts of you. Yeah, that's where you were. I'm not going to say it didn't happen. I'm not going to say we don't have to talk about it. Remember, there's a pain that comes with that. We don't have to whitewash history. We can be honest about the walls that have been built the distances that have been placed, the labeling that has taken place. And I think that's important. If there's ever to be unity, it's to remember the past. Remember, let's go now jump to our current context, how the black church was born not because the black church sought to leave the white church, but because the black church was expelled from the white church. Remember how white privilege wasn't something that minorities spoke over the white community to speak of their oppression, but it was actually something in the Dred Scott case that was named by white judges as a privilege that white people have in this country that minorities do not. Know your history. Where does this language come from? Remember, so we can be faithful in the present. And that comes with pain. But we have to embrace the pain of the personal, systemic, and structural elements that have made up our world today. And so remember. But we can't stop there. That's not where we're meant to dwell. Secondly, we need to embrace the pain of the cross. Why? Because there are certain actions and pains 
in our corporate lives and in our personal lives that cannot fully be repaid. I'm not saying that there aren't good avenues for restitution and so on. That's a part of repentance. We see this across scripture. But we have to understand that fully and finally it has to be paid for by someone better and bigger than us in the cross. Remember, the church is built not on our good deeds, but on Christ's efficient work. And that's the starting point. You know, Brene Brown, I know she's a pretty popular person and has been for a minute now. She's a research professor at University of Houston, and she's been the author of three, three number one best-selling books in the New York Times bestselling list. That's pretty sharp. There's probably more now. I don't know. Um, but she went back to church in pain. Like so many people, right? We, we, if we've distanced ourselves from church for a while, and then when we're in pain, we're like, okay, maybe, maybe I need to go give it another try. And she went back to church when she was in pain. And, and the, the reason why she went back to the ch- church in pain is the same reason a lot of people go back to the church in pain. They think that the church is going to take away their pain. That I'm going to come, I'm just going to drop it there, and then it's going to be gone. And she says, I missed it. I love this. In an interview, she's like, I missed the point of the church. It's not just to take my pain away. She goes, I, I, she used this illustration. I thought the church, when I met her, she would give me an epidural and numb my pain. <laughs> but it's so much more than that. The church is much more a midwife who walks through the pain with me rather than numbing it. And that's so crucial when it comes to joy. That's so crucial to our healing. Rather than just avoiding pain, it's walking through it. And this is the only path to hope, friends. Naming wounds, naming pain, experiencing the forgiveness of the cross, extending that one to another, experiencing reconciliation and seeing how the cross is at the center of that injustice. Brene Brown would say that there has to be blood on the floor. And because there is blood in the beautiful work of Jesus, there is indeed hope for us. But we can't stop there. You can't stop at just the pain or embracing the pain of remembering as the Apostle Paul guides this church to do here or embrace the pain of the cross as he centers our focus and our attention here. We have to then thirdly, after we've done that, embrace the pain of coming together. I know some people think, well, church should be so easy to come together. It should be so easy to kind of walk along. Well, sometimes, like when I'm sitting with couples, you know, doing premarital stuff, sometimes they're like, we never fight. And I'm like, oh, dear Lord. Um, God help them. Help them to have a good argument. Because if you're never fighting, then one of you's not necessary, okay? Because you're not the same person, but one of you's faking it. Really good community has good arguments. I'm not saying you have to yell at one another all the time. That's also not healthy. But we can still have disagreements. We can have arguments, and we can call them arguments and don't just have to call them disagreements. You know, those folks, oh, we weren't arguing. You're just disagreeing. No, you were fighting. It's okay. <laughs> Fight. It's all right sometimes. Be careful. I know. Some of you need to not fight as much. No, I'm just kidding. I'll let you get away with that one. <laughs> Real church right here, folks. Real church. But we see the mess. You fight for it, and you commit to her, and you work for her. Because if you realize if the person sitting next to you was worthy Jesus' blood, they're probably worthy yours too. And you have to commit to come together. And it involves pain again and again, especially when you feel utterly different. 
Especially when there's so many forces outside of God's purposes that say we ought to be separate from one another. So where do we start? Well, the starting point, if you're new here, is to keep coming here. (laughs) Is to be a part of a church somewhere, a local church. The work that the Apostle Paul is describing here is not something that's great and abstract so you can still live your life alone. That is not what he's talking about here. The, 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 the picture of the church is local, it's beautiful, it's messy, and it's real. Not just an idea. It's as real as the person who keeps bumping your elbows when they're writing notes, right? Stop it. No, I'm just kidding. It's real. And maybe for you, a starting point would be to take and go with us on the next Dividing Lines tour to get a better understanding of the divisions in our history in our city. Maybe for some of you, it's going on the school tour that's coming up here this week and learning a little bit about the history of education in Kansas City and how it has been intentionally divided. And the hard thing in the midst of all of that, how even though it may have been intentionally divided, it takes so much energy to undo or to unbreak apart what has been separated and enclaved. It just takes so much more energy to stop inertia, even when it's inertia of brokenness. And maybe it's just to keep showing up here because the Apostle Paul has more to say on this issue as we'll come to see across the letter and joining us and continuing to learn from God's word and from his apostle what we have to learn so that we can be the church he's called us to be. And for some of you, you've been coming for a while and maybe even you've heard me talk about this passage once or twice or three times before as we've brilliantly come back to the the goodness of God's word here or God's brilliant goodness in his word here. Well, keep coming. Keep building relationships, even though sometimes people have to move on, and there's pain when people have to move on. Keep building relationships, even when people feel really different from you, politically, racially, ethnically, socioeconomically. Keep diving in. You don't have to join all the culture wars and be a culture warrior. You don't have to fix all of America's problems. We just have to be the church. And, I, and to be here, to clear, that, that doesn't mean we avoid the world's problems. <laughs> because we are meant to be a different community here such that when you go where you go on Monday in the relationships, the roles, and the responsibilities, you show up differently because you're a part of this family. You step into that space and you go, oh, let me enter into that pain with you because I've got a whole family with me. You're not alone when you go on Monday to your occupation or to the spaces that God has called you. You don't go alone. You come with a whole new family identity of belonging here and the memories that are instilled here so that you can show up differently and be a catalyst and salt and light in the world. And you know what we have to look forward to when we, when we embrace the pain of remembering and embracing the pain of the cross and embracing the pain of coming together? Look with me, verses 19 through 22. Look at this beautiful. So then you, and that's a plural you, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I'm going to stop there for just a second. The cornerstone was the keystone at the very bottom 
that actually shaped the whole structure. The temple had a cornerstone that actually shaped the whole structure. And now Jesus is now the cornerstone of what he is building. It's the very foundation that sets out the trajectory of where the walls go and who's included. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. There's that language again, thinking about the imagery of the the old walls and the dividing lines. Into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see this? The triune God of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit is also one. There's threeness and oneness. There's distinction and yet unity. And where does he dwell? Not in the far back reaches, somewhere in the back that only a few people get to get closer and closer. It's actually among this diverse but unified community that doesn't seek to to, 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 to disappear or to, to imagine somehow that there aren't distinctions. I don't see color. I don't see difference. Well, you should. You're missing some of God's glorious creation. And instead of saying there aren't any distinctions, no, there are beautiful distinctions. And he's instead of obliterating those distinctions, he's brought unity in the midst of those distinctions, just like there is a distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and yet they are one. In the same way there are distinctions between male and female when he makes them still a one new flesh in marriage. There is two-ness and there is oneness. In God there is three-ness and there is oneness. In this church there are a lot of nesses and there's oneness. Do you see the picture? This is wonderful. And it's all anchored in who God is and what he's done in the world. And he's uniquely now doing in Jesus. That's not seeking to push back the Jewish people and include the Gentiles, but instead now the Jewish people were close. And now he's also including the Gentiles. And now we get to be one body. And listen, listen, this is what's so important because when you go across chapter one, I'm going to do this quickly. You got chapter one, you got Jesus on his throne. He has accomplished the victory that is solely due his name. He has defeated death. He rose again. And this victory now takes shape in our lives personally. And it also takes shape in our community. And often when kings would experience victory, they would go to the temple of their gods and they would celebrate this victory at the temple because whatever happened at the temple was a mirror image of what they believed was happening in the heavens but where does God go when we go to celebrate his victory we don't go to his temple to celebrate his victory we are his temple and he's celebrating it right now right where you're seated when this word is being preached his victory is being proclaimed in and among us isn't that wonderful this is not an idea this is a reality. Woo. And when I was thinking about this passage, I can't help but think of a church I came across in Berlin. Some of you were here last week. We had Alex from our global church partner. The name of their church translated in English is Project Church. I always try to say it in German and I just butcher it, so I'm just going to lean into who I am, friends. <laughs> Project Church. And while we were there, Alex kind of gave us some tours and walked us around, and we were able to go to the Berlin Wall where it once stood. A world divided between capitalism and communism, east and west, different ideologies and ways of looking at the world. And you know what was right at the center of this wall? It was one of the most amazing churches. You see, in 1961... There was a church in the middle of what was called the dead zone or no man's land or death zone. 
You had the east wall and you had the west wall and right smack in between these two walls, you had a church. And check out what the name of this church was. It's wonderful. It was called Reconciliation Church. <laughs> I just love this. I saw this. I was like, oh, man, I'm preaching on this. <laughs> oh. And it stood there. Look at that. You see, you got the east wall and you got the west wall and the church is right there in the middle. In this, this, this no man's land where nobody was allowed to go but the guards. And for decades it sat empty with only the guards able to enter in. But the prayer gatherings of this divided church, they still met on both sides of the wall and prayed. <laughs> they still connected with one another the best they could. And there that church stood, an institutional mockery of the ideological divide. Between two ideologies stood a people, a church. That is, until 1985, where the German Democratic Republic, that's the east side there, blew up the church. Now, they sought to do this to send a message to Protestant churches and opponents of their regime who were uh, standing up for free speech. But here's the deal. They failed. They blew up the church. Uh, it was definitely demoed, um, as the picture shows. But the spirit of that church was emblazoned, and the legacy of that church was anchored in the annals of history. You see, and this is a good reminder, not even death for his church defeats the victory of Christ. He will continue on. You see, even though this church was utterly demolished, in 1995, interestingly enough, the day of repentance, where so many Germans repented corporately, nationally, of their horrendous sins, and dynamics, and when they thought about making right the wrongs that they had made. Yes, this was something that the Germans did really well. The cross that actually sat atop that steeple resurfaced. Interestingly enough, it came banged and tattered and bent, but one of the cemetery staff had found it before they gathered it, and they hid it for such a time. You see, as they were trying to eradicate this annoying symbol that highlighted that there is indeed a God and in Jesus he can bring unity and create a people among himself that is beautiful and better than any other ideology. This very cross became a symbol of victory, hidden for quite a while, but not defeated. <laughs> a symbol of victory. And you know what? what's, what's absolutely beautiful? You know what stands where Reconciliation Church used to be? Another church <laughs> a symbol of what the church ought to be a, a symbol of what the church can be and frankly a catalyst that calls each and every one of us as the church gathered and scattered to be asserting God's victory to tear down the walls that the rest of the world seeks to build up you see in Jesus there are no walls that stand between his people. Whether it be systemic racism, whether it be the historic truce divide here in Kansas City, maybe now due to development, it might be more like Highway 71 if we think about those conversations. Or even the superiority that just cuts a line between e every, each and every one of our hearts, <laughs> regardless of our backgrounds. You see, there's hope here because of what God in Christ has made the church to be. There's hope here because of what God in Christ is doing in the church that actually can put to shame the divisions 
of the world. If, if we embrace the pain, if we embrace the pain of remembering, if we embrace the pain of the cross, if we embrace the pain of coming together, you see, there is hope for the church yet, friends. Here we can go about the business of reconstructing faith off of God's world, God's word. If we join Jesus in continuing to build up what he builds up and not tear or build up walls that he's already torn down. Hmm? Let's pray. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that the church was your idea and that the messiness of the church was your idea. And that the redemption of all of our messiness was your idea. And that you're making a family that just puts to shame the rest of the world. When the rest of the world says affinity or diversity for diversity's sake, or actually seeks to come with always incomplete strategies to build a community that will sustain and come alongside of the pains and the brokenness of the world, only you have the best blueprint. And you've began that work and accomplished that work in Jesus by the Spirit, according to our great Father. Thank you. May we lean more deeply into it as we pick up our cross and so follow you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.